Our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 23. Listen now to God's word. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, kept demanding from him a sign from heaven. But he knew everything that they, he knew what they were thinking and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert, and house falls on house. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? God, I pray again the prayer of St. Patrick that says, may Christ be in the ear of those who hear me. Father, speak through me and give us all ears to hear what you are saying. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. In the spring of 1997, in the spring of 1997, little awkward, socially unaware seventh grade Jeremy stepped out of a taxi onto a beach. And many things about that day was typical of a day at the beach. I could feel the sand beneath my feet. I could hear the sound of the waves crashing on the shore. I could smell the salt of the salt water of the Atlantic Ocean. But there were other things about that day at the beach that were not typical of a day at the beach. There were no flying frisbees. There was no sunbathing. There was no laughter. And there were very little words spoken at all. I was there that day with my family. My older brother and my younger brother, my parents, my grandmother, and most importantly for this day, my grandfather. Now many of you may have known my grandfather, and most of you who knew him knew him as Pete, or Brother Arnold. But this day was not a typical day at the beach because he had been to this beach before. And when he was at this beach before, he was not known by Brother Arnold or Grandpa or Pete. He was known as Sergeant Arnold. 
Because 50 years before that, he had walked those beaches. And that day, as a seventh grader, walking the beaches of Normandy with my grandfather, I knew, even as a very unaware, awkward seventh grade boy, I knew this was a moment I would never forget. And my grandfather began to tell stories that he had never told to his family. And it was a powerful moment. The people of France, the citizens of France, were unable to save themselves. They lived in occupied territory. And they needed help. And so on that day, June 23rd, 1944, just 17 days after the initial boots hit the ground in Normandy, my grandfather and his troops fought their way through France. They went through France, Luxembourg, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Germany to within 35 miles of Berlin, the closest American unit to Hitler's capital. And he was there for all of it. Because they knew that the people there were powerless to save themselves. Help had to come from somewhere else. The biblical narrative throughout the Bible tells a story of people living in occupied territory, in a land that had been overrun by enemy forces. Throughout the scriptures, we hear language about typically mythical creatures that are living in the realm of creation. And most of the time when I get to these scriptures, I don't know about you, most of the time I get to them and I just move on because I have no idea why we're talking about a seven-headed snake that lives in the sea or these monsters that are here. Now, I need to reassure all of you, um, I got some comments about the sign out front. I, in no way, shape, or form, am meaning to imply that our preschool is cosmic monsters. <laughs> That's a separate announcement. Uh, Paige, I'm not saying a preschool is filled with cosmic monsters. You might say that. I would not ever say that. The biblical narrative talks about these cosmic monsters that often, as Christians in 2019, we just move on and don't think about. Nahum Sarna is a Jewish scholar uh, who is, uh, was a brilliant man uh, explaining the Hebrew scriptures. And in his introduction to his commentary on Genesis, he talks about these mythical creatures. The sea, with a capital S. The river, with a capital R. Leviathan. Rahab, Tannin, these are all things that Christians in 2019 typically 
don't understand. Leviathan, literally translated, is a coiled one. Rahab, in most of these scriptures in the Old Testament, is not referring to the story of Rahab the prostitute, but to what's literally translated as the arrogant one. And tannin just means dragon. All of these things are mythical creatures that the ancient Near East people had concepts of that we typically do not today. And the biblical narrative tells a story of creation overrun by these cosmic monsters, almost always identified with water or with waters or the sea or the rivers. And so we're going to run a sprint through that biblical narrative this morning. Um, Daniel, if I'm on the scripture that you find, great. If not, we'll move on and everybody will forgive him. Uh, if you're a note taker, I encourage you to put your pen down. Uh, I, can, I can make you a copy of these scriptures if you would like. Genesis chapter 1 begins with God creating the heavens and the earth. And then it says, The earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. The ancient people believed that the waters were filled with monsters. And for God to be hovering over these, the face of the deep and the face of the waters was for him to be protecting them from these cosmic monsters. Genesis 3 introduces a serpent who is craftier than the rest, whom later people identify as being influenced by evil or by Satan. But Genesis is not our oldest writing of the Old Testament. Most scholars believe that Job is our oldest writing. So listen to some of these quick passages from Job. And listen for these words of sea or waters or dragons or Rahab. All of these names for these cosmic mythical monsters. Am I the sea or the dragon that you set a guard over me? Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? God will not turn back his anger. The helpers of Rahab bowed beneath him. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he struck down Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. This theme of cosmic monsters also runs throughout the Psalms. Just a few of them. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Listen to Psalm 77 when the waters are personified. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. The very deep trembled. And into the prophets, the prophet Isaiah says, On that day the Lord, with his cruel and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will kill the dragon that is in the sea. What are we to make of all of these Old Testament passages about these mythical creatures? Rather than avoid them or skip over them, I'd like for us to just stare at them this morning. 
This idea that the world is occupied by other powers or cosmic monsters permeates the Old Testament. It runs throughout from Job through the Psalms into the prophets and particularly into the period right before the Old Testament. The word apocalypse has made a comeback these days, almost always referring to what happens at the end of time. But the word apocalypse does not always refer to these catastrophic events at the end of time. Biblical uh, apocalypse is a worldview. Biblical apocalypse is a view not just about these catastrophic catastrophic end-time events, but of a current reality of a battle taking place between good and evil. This is the worldview that is represented by these stories of cosmic monsters. Whether the Old Testament people literally believed in these cosmic monsters as physical beings in the sea misses the point entirely. Their purpose in writing these passages is to speak of a deeper reality. That there is a battle going on in our midst between good and evil. And this was their worldview. This is the worldview that Jesus of Nazareth was born into. This is the worldview in which the New Testament was birthed. This is the worldview that hoped for a Messiah, a coming Savior, to save people from these forces of evil personified in these mythical creatures. The very first messianic prophecy is Genesis chapter 3. Right after the story of the serpent and Adam and Eve, when God is speaking, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And later, this passage is identified with Jesus Christ. This is the worldview of the New Testament. This is the way people thought back then. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. One of the uh, chapters in the Bible that help us see this worldview in Jesus himself is Luke chapter 4. As Jesus' ministry is just getting started, he's been baptized and he's just now getting started. He goes out into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days, which is strongly connected with the season of Lent that we're in right now. We get this little story in Luke chapter 4, verse 5. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority. For it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And we expect Jesus to say, I will take that authority from you. It is not yours anyways. But he doesn't say that. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He says nothing about 
the lack of influence that the devil does have. He merely acknowledges it and moves on. Later on in the same chapter, we're told this story. When Jesus is at the temple, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Jesus' very first public sermon, he says that he has come to undo the things that the devil has been doing. He has come to right the wrongs. He has come to undermine the authority of these cosmic forces of evil. Later on, in the same chapter, it seems like Luke is trying to tell us something. In the same chapter, we get this story. In the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is not a new war. This is an ancient war. They recognize each other. I know who you are, this demon says, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down before them, he came out of him without having done him any harm. They were all amazed and kept saying to one another, What kind of utterance is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And out they come. And a report about him began to reach every place in that region. And so Jesus comes on the scene when this cosmic war between these forces of evil are taking place, and he immediately jumps in. The scripture that I read right before we started this sermon is another story when Jesus is talking about demons, or unclean spirits. But specifically, verses 21 and 22 speak to this concept, that he has come to undermine the authority of evil. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his plunder. The gospel tells us that Jesus has come as the strong man, that he has come to overpower the ruler of the earth, which is labeled as Satan or evil. there's any doubt as to Jesus' Jesus's mission to come and do this, John chapter 12 helps us see exactly what Jesus' mission is. When he's speaking about his death, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. 
And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came down from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. And now hear verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. Jesus identifies his mission to drive out these evil powers that have long been lurking within creation. Much like occupied France needed help from outside, creation needed a savior from a different realm. It did not have the power to save itself. And this is the worldview of the New Testament. It's within this worldview that we get stories like Jonah, who is saved from the depths of the sea. It's within this worldview that we get Israelites' constant, constant reminder that God has brought, through, brought them through the waters of Egypt. It is within this worldview that the disciples witness Jesus walking on the water and calming the storm that rages in the sea. With this worldview in mind, I call all of us to remember our baptisms. If you were baptized in a United Methodist Church, you were asked this question at the very beginning. On behalf of the whole church, I ask you, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness? Reject the evil powers of this world and repent of your sin? And then you are asked, do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and depression in whatever forms they present? That's an important question. Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to, to resist these powers in whatever form they present. And the forms that I've seen them presented in are usually not leviathans or great coiled serpents. But those mythical creatures represent the evil that permeates not just the New Testament world, but our world in 2019. There is a temptation to separate good and evil by drawing lines. There's a temptation to say, well, here's the line between good and evil, and I'm over here. Thank goodness I'm not on the side of evil. The temptation is to draw these lines between good and evil by drawing lines between countries, religions, political parties, races. But there's a quote that's been sticking in my head for the past several months. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this after he experienced 
unbelievable evil in Russia. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts inside us. It oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. When we hear stories like are coming out of New Zealand this week, the temptation is to say, these people are on the other side of this line that has been drawn because they are evil and I am not. But I tend to agree with Mr. Soltzenheitzen that the line between good and evil goes through my heart and your heart, that each and every one of us is capable of allowing evil to permeate our very souls. And much like the citizens of France, we are incapable of forcing it out. We need help from another realm, from another sphere. Lent is a time of reflection on the cross and its significance in our lives. Oftentimes when we reflect on the cross, the language we use is that of the judicial system. That the penalty of our sin is paid on the cross. And that we no longer have to pay those wages of, of, of death that Paul talks about in Romans. And thank God that that's true. That there has been a substitute for me. But there's another theme of the cross that sometimes we forget, sometimes I forget. In theology, it's called the Christus Victor theme. I really wanted to, to title my sermon Christus Victor, but I didn't think it would get the, the feedback that cosmic monsters got on the sign. Because really, that's what this is about. That Christ is the victor. This theme states that on the cross, Jesus invaded. Jesus invaded enemy territory. And he won a great decisive victory. That on the cross, Jesus won a victory over the powers of sin and death. Theologian Gustav Allen says this about this Christus Victor theme. The work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage. Sin, death, and the devil. The victory of Christ creates a new situation bringing their rule to an end and setting men free from their dominion. Oh, that's so good. Creating a new situation, bringing their rule to an end and setting men free from their dominion. During this season of Lent, I've been reflecting more and more on this Christus Victor theme. What does it mean that I have been saved from the realm of sin and death? 
Pastor Greg alluded earlier and read Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It's the most repeated Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted or alluded to over 20 times. In second place is Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. But it only got seven mentions. There's something about this psalm that God makes his enemies his footstool that resonated with the early church. It was a message that people needed to hear. And I believe it's a message that I need to hear. That the forces of evil still exist in this world. And no, there's not a dragon that lives in the sea, literally. But there is evil, there is oppression, there is injustice all around us. And I need to know, I need to be reminded that the God I serve makes his enemies his footstool. Some of us would rather look the other way and pretend there are no evils. That would be a lot easier. Some of us here today feel like we are facing these evils each and every day. And the picture of dragons or serpents seems about right. And so I remind us that we serve a God who makes his enemies his footstool. And I leave you with this scripture from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the reminder this week that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. I thank you for the reminder this week that my heart is also capable of great evil and that I am dependent completely and wholly on you to invade that evil and force it out. Come, Holy Spirit, come invade our hearts. Rid us of evil. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Amen.